1: Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. We're everywhere. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report.
2: Good morning, this is Bennett Kelly, founder of the Internet Law Center, broadcasting live here from sunny Santa Monica in the heart of Silicon Beach. Please be seated, we have a great show for you, as usual, and you can find information about today's show in our show notes on our blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com, and as always, follow us on Twitter at Cyberlaw Radio. So, our guest today, he's a return guest, it's been almost five years, though, is Jeffrey Greenbaum. He's the managing partner of Frankfurt Kernett, and he's someone I've had the opportunity to appear on several panels with. And he's a, a brilliant attorney and a, an outstanding presenter. And um, so I'm really glad to have him back to talk about the very interesting topic of influencers and FTC enforcement. Jeffrey, you're with us.
0: Yes, uh, thanks, Bennett. Thanks for having me
2: back. And thank you, and Happy New Year to you. Um, so the, the news today is that the current FTC uh, acting chair, uh, Maureen Allhausen, is going to be appointed to the Federal Circuit bench, um, which if that happened, we, the FTC would be left with a single commissioner.
0: Right. I guess I guess the operative words there are uh, going to. Right. Yeah. And we're in a very, very strange place right now with FTC. You know, we've got two commissioners, one Democrat, one Republican. Uh, three seats have been vacant for a long time. Uh, the president has said that he intends to nominate three additional uh, commissioners, including a new chairman, though the last I've heard that the, the nominations actually haven't formally been put forward. No. So, you know, we're, we're sort of, a, you know, from a, you know, I think we, none of us really knows what's going to happen there, but I, I think it also creates a very unusual situation where, you know, we've had an acting commissioner now for more than a year and no one really knows where the FTC is going.
2: And we were talking offline and I had meetings in Washington in May with and at the FTC and, you know, the staff really couldn't give much guidance since, you know, they didn't know. They didn't even know whether, you know, all Halzen would be named chairman or, or not. And um, so it's really created a certain, I think, confusion about the direction. Um, do you know anything about the, the names of the people who've been put forward as um, as possible nominees? I've heard Joseph Simmons and Rohit Chopra. Do you know anything about them?
0: Well, you know, I would say... Um... You know, I would say that I would say that the proposed chairman, you know, is, you know, I don't know a lot about him, but the stuff that the stuff that I've heard is that I think people think highly of him. Look, I mean, he was the head of the Bureau of Competition uh, Mm -hmm. back in, you know, whatever, the early 2000s. And so he's the real thing. You know, he's a serious antitrust lawyer. And I think people say that he is thoughtful and smart and he's not going to be, you know, some sort of political shell in that way. So I, I think people think of him as somebody who could provide thoughtful leadership to the FTC. You know, other than that, obviously he's coming, he's coming from, a, he's coming from, you know, a great firm. Uh, you know, I was a police years ago too, though, not at the same time. So, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think that, you know, I don't think his nomination, you know, at least we're not hearing in the consumer protection community any obvious concerns you know I think from a direction FTC direction standpoint, you know it is an it is an interesting place to be in for a couple of reasons. I think the first is is that you know I think historically you know you see a a, a real change in focus between you know what the FTC is doing during democratic versus republican administrations, and I think we've seen some of that now already, and some would say that that's because the current acting chair chairwoman has you know. Uh, you know, quote, been sort of campaigning for the position and wanted to stay on as uh, as chairman, and whether that's true or not, who knows, but she's certainly trying to be, she's certainly apparently uh, been trying to push an agenda that would be one that I think the president would like, and so I think that we have seen that kind of a shift in focus. Yeah, more of a free the,
2: market type of, of approach.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that, I think that, I mean, I think to, to maybe overgeneralize or to exaggerate a little bit. And I, I think that in a democratic administration, you see them pushing boundaries. You see a, a more of a, of an agenda to try to change the marketplace, to try to do things that are going to affect the way that people advertise and really uh, uh, slightly more, I guess I would say, and, and I don't mean in a pejorative way, but a real activist agenda, really trying to address pervasive concerns sort of at all levels of the marketplace. And I think that, and you'll see during a Democratic administration again, you'll know, fall big false advertising cases, national advertisers where the FTCs are really looking at them and asking questions about, you know, what's happening out there. Whereas I think in a Republican administration, you tend to see more of a focus on sort of the concrete financial harms suffered by the most vulnerable consumers. And you know, the reality is, is that it's all good work. There's lots of work out there to be done you know, FTC only has limited resources and people have to make judgments about where they're going to focus their efforts and saying, Hey, you know, we're going to focus our efforts on really vulnerable consumers who are being defrauded and weight loss schemes and get rich quick schemes. You know, that's all really important work to be done as well. But I think you definitely see more of a shift in focus there. And I think that the acting chairman did really specifically articulate that sort of need to focus on really a concrete harm. I think also, You know, the FTC has always been a big supporter of self-regulation. The FTC has always said, you know, that, look, we can't do everything. An effective self-regulation system in the advertising industry is a way to uh, be a better, you know, to be better policemen out there. And I think that although the current FTC has also been vocal in support of self-regulation, I think that they've put it more front and center. And I think they've said, It's not just that we're partnering with self-regulation, but we're looking to self-regulation to do a lot of the job here. And I think that what they were signaling is, is that some of the kinds of big national false advertising cases that you'd been seeing over the last several years or over the last eight years, maybe you weren't going to see as many of those uh, under the new administration. Now, the reality is if a new chairman is confirmed, if we have a new full commission, you know, no one really knows what the new agenda is going to be like, but certainly yeah, those are the kinds of messages that you would expect to see. Now, I would say that being said, you know, I, in many ways, a lot of indications have suggested that the staff has continued to do their job, and that they really have continued to focus on the areas where they've been focused on over the last eight years. So I, I think that, I think that, you know, even though we've seen, even though we're in this interim period, and even though you know we're certainly seeing a political change, we've still seen a staff that's gotten the support of the remaining commissioners. To sort of continue with the agenda that they had started many years ago,
2: and and on that point, I mean, Olhausen was staff, you know, before she got appointed to the commission, you know, and so you know there is that you know sense of continuity. I, I think you know some of the people I met with probably think that someday they could be appointed, but um, for those who just to step back, for those who aren't familiar with the Federal Trade Commission, and we have talked a lot about it on the show, you know, its mission is to regulate. anything that's unfair or deceptive in um, interstate commerce and it has a major role in the antitrust enforcement in terms of approval of mergers and so half of the the FTC's function is a traditional um, antitrust function and um, which is very involved in approving mergers and has a lot of economic analysis to it and um but then the other half is is really the National Consumer Protection Bureau. And and then in our show, which focuses on internet issues, you know, we're primarily focused on, on the second part and they'll probably be talking about that today. But um it's important. So the, the, the person named chairman is a traditional antitrust lawyer. And and that's that's fine. That's that's often been the case. I mean, I started my career. Working at uh, Howery and Simon, which was founded by Jack Howery, uh, an antitrust lawyer and former chair of the FTC. So um, that you know that's not unusual. Uh, I was surprised by the, the appointment of Rohit Chopra, who is, uh, I guess, uh, um, has ties to Elizabeth Warren and uh, and works at the Consumer Federation. And granted, the, the the FTC is bipartisan; you supposed to have Democrat. And Republican members assigned, but I would, I would, I would just expect that a, a Trump Democrat appointee would be somewhat more of a moderate than um, than this this nominee. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the FTC
0: is required to not have more than three members of the same party. Um, you know, I think. I think uh, a lot of the questions, you know, I think that have been raised about, you know, why certain appointments haven't gone through yet, why certain nominations are being made. You know, there's a lot of, uh, it, it seems like there's a lot of deals being made in the back that we're not aware of.
2: Then it must be. I mean, they announced this in October and we still haven't seen the nominations. And then the third person yeah. who's been, who will be named eventually is Noah Phillips, and he's the chief counsel for Senator John Cornyn. So there you might have a more ideological type of nominee. I don't know a whole lot about him. Um, I'm just looking at his bio on the Federalist Society. So I don't know if you've you ever run, run across him or not.
0: No, I haven't. But again, I, mean, I, I think that there's clearly <laughs> there's, there's there's clearly other things, other things going on here in terms of how some of these decisions are being made. But I think we just don't know enough about them yet.
2: It is odd. I mean, here we are, twelve months into an administration, that's had these vacancies for this entire period, and we still don't even know who will, who or when the the chairman will be, um, you know, take take, take well, it, the reins. It has
0: definitely. Yeah, I mean, it has definitely been difficult for FTC staff, you know, who are out there, you know, who a big part of their mission has always been sort of a business education mission. And in fact, I think that the uh, acting Chairman housing also was a big supporter of doing as much business education in lieu of, you know, enforcement, in lieu of creating burdens on business, and things like that. And I think the, the difficulty has been for staff is very, very difficult to talk about what the priorities are and what the agenda is, because as you said, they don't really know yet.
2: Right. And I, now I know a lot of agencies, you're seeing departures um, just because of some of the shift in priority, but also um, I think you know, just in confusion about what's going on. Do you Have you heard of any de- significant departures from the FTC or have they been able to hold steady?
0: You know, I think that there's been a lot of consistency in the staff there. I mean, they really have an outstanding, smart, professional group of people who have really devoted careers to working in consumer protection. And, yeah, there have been some natural departures, but I I think that there's still a lot of the same uh, group of people there. And the truth is they're kind of doing the same work that they've been doing.
2: Right. You build a foundation, and so, yeah, you're continuing the initiatives you've already started. It's just a question of the new
0: initiatives. that's right. I mean, you know, if, if if I were crystal ball reading, you know, whatever it was two Decembers ago, I would have said, look, we're not going to see a lot of activity out of consumer protection that impacts national advertisers. We'll continue to see the fraud cases. We'll continue to see sort of the data breach cases, but we're not going to see, you know, things where they're really trying to look at national advertising things that affect big business in that way but in fact you know we've continued to see uh, the, a lot of the same type of activity from the ftc that we've been seeing so i think it does suggest that um at least at the moment the two commissioners are in alignment about the kinds of things the ftc had been doing before or at least many of them and they felt com- comfortable continuing to do them and have felt comfortable that that was consistent with you know sort of an overall agenda. You know, I think some of this gets back to your antitrust point, which is, you know, the, the FTC is a sort of a market-based agency, right? They're right. ultimately concerned with the efficient operation of the markets, And I think that, you know, the antitrust and the consumer protection side, you know, really in many ways both serve that functions, but from a different, you know, using using different tools. And so I think that even from a consumer protection standpoint, you know, as more of the marketplace, you know, Goes online as more of the marketplace goes mobile. You know, the, the efficient, the efficient operation of the sort of online ecosystem, you know, is critical to efficiently operating markets. And so, I think right. that sort of some of the consumer protection mission that we've seen them continue, really just continues to support. This idea that business has to, you know, in order for American business to operate well, it has to be able to actually have the trust of consumers and operate efficiently. And people have to trust what they're seeing online. And I think that what we've seen is a lot of a lot of focus on that area. So I don't think it's inconsistent with sort of a, both a sort of efficient marketplace mission, but also you know, it's, I think from a Republican acting chairman standpoint, it's also not inconsistent with sort of what you would expect their approach
2: to be. Right. And there's nothing Democratic or Republican about, for example, data security. You know, I think there could be uh, differences you- in terms of, you know, how aggressive enforcement should be or, you know, the liability you reach. But, you know, all, you know Commissioner Alhosen has made that a priority just as her predecessor has.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. But I also think that, you know, going after data security breaches, encouraging people to keep their informi- companies to keep people's information private. It's also pretty uncontroversial, right? right? That's not the area where, you know, that's not the area where businesses are going to say, you know, we don't need to be careful about, you know, how we treat customers, uh, you know, sensitive information. So it, it seems like a, it seems like a safe uh, path to tread.
2: Although I think there's a hotel chain that might disagree with you, <laughs> but um, the, going back to the Obama years at the FTC and kind of you know transitioning to what we're, we're mainly going to talk about today, you know, there were there were a number of initiatives. One of which was updating prior you know pronouncements for the digital age, and that would be you know the endorsement guidelines in terms of you know how rules for how endorsements should be made and, and disclosing um, when and when someone is doing an endorsement and then the, the dot-com disclosure guidelines you know they were put together in, in the early 2000s and updated for the social media age in 2013 so you, you had that going on um, but then you also Can had I- go ahead
0: you know, go, well, I was going to say, I think that's right. And I think, you, you know, you saw these big initiatives that were recognizing that, you know, we needed to take some of this guidance that's been around for a long time and really try to, or, or that didn't exist, you know, and in, in terms of the disclosures in the online space, and really give people specific guidance. I mean, it, it feels like yesterday that the FTC had to issue guidance that said that the same rules that apply offline apply online, right? So, you know, there was a period of yes, we need to figure out how the standards that we've been applying in an offline context apply online. And I, I think that the dot-com disclosure guidelines, which I don't know are from 2000, 2003, something like that. You know, what's, what, what's, so inter- what's so interesting about them is if you read the original ones before they were updated, whatever, 10, 13 years later, there there's such a sense of possibility. Mm-hmm. Know, there's this sense of, you know, doing a disclosure in a print advertisement or a TV commercial, there's just not that many ways to do it. There's not that many places to do it. There's not that much technology that changes the way that consumers will be able to interpret things. And the, the the dot-com guidance really provided, said, look, you know, you've got unlimited possibilities now. You know, the idea that you can scroll and hyperlink and, you know, put all of this content on a page and direct people's attention to places and use other kinds of, you know, visual and sound cues to sort of let people know what's important. Sort of, it was this incredible sense of possibility that adverti- it was really going to open the door to advertisers. Being able to be a lot more creative about the ways in which they disclose, but it also sort of, it, at that moment, suggested that you know there may be some more flexibility there, that the FTC was going to really let people use technology in a logical way, to, you know, to help them do these do do these things better, and I, I think that you know one of I think one of the difficulties is, is that you know, sort of, from an FTC perspective, the consumer doesn't have to do a lot. Right? In other words, you could have a legal, to, to, to take a sort of a, a simple example, you could have a print advertisement in your newspaper that has, that's promoting some cars, and at the bottom of the ad there's a block of disclosure that explains what it's about. And you could have a legal standard that requires that in order for a consumer to be misled by an advertisement, they would actually have to read the advertisement. Right? That could be the legal standard, right? Like you you can't just read the headline and turn the page and say you were confused. If you're going to say you're confused by something, you actually have to read the whole ad and digest it before you turn the page. And that's not the legal standard. I mean, the legal standard really is, is that we sort of take consumers the way that we find them and that we understand that consumers are going to be exposed to all types of advertising and look at them, you know, briefly while distracted, while thinking about other things. And as a result, you're responsible for their failure to be careful when reviewing advertising. And as a result of that, you know, we've created, you know, we've sort of created legal standards that, you know, essentially say to, say to advertisers, unless you hit the head, unless you consumers hit the, unless you, unless you hit consumers over the head with a disclosure, unless you make them unavoidable, unless you do something to make sure that they're going to not be confused, no matter how quickly or, I would say irresponsibly. They're looking at this stuff. You're responsible if they're confused. And so this original dot-com guidance gave the impression that, well, maybe we're going to be more flexible than that. Maybe if you actually had the ability for a consumer to click and learn more, that that was going to be enough. And so there was this incredible sense of possibility. And so I think this is a long way of saying that 10 years, 13 years later, whatever it was, when they issued the revised com guidance, they mm-hmm. kind of took it all back. You know, they kind of said, whatever we said about all the ways in which we thought you could disclose information in alternate ways, ah, we don't really think any of that's working. We think the reality is, is that the way you've always done it is the same way you need to do it now, which is you got to make it really big and prominent and right there in a way that everyone can see it because you know what? No one's going to scroll. No one's going to click through. No one's going to look in somewhere, somewhere else. You know, they're really, they're really, you really got to give it to them exactly in the easiest possible way that you can give it to them. And so I, I think that it's, when, when advertisers think about disclosures online and really we're talking about social media today, it's really important to understand that from an FTC perspective, they, really, they don't expect consumers to take any action to protect themselves or barely any. And second, they believe that consumers are so likely to miss disclosures because of their placement, their prominence, because of everything else that's going on on the page, that if you're really trying to use a disclosure to solve a problem, you're gonna have to go out of your way to do it. And so I think that that's the message that we got from an FTC in the revised, sort of during the Obama years, which was the online disclosures don't really work, sort of the use of technology isn't really helping the sort of one click away that everyone was relying on to say, well, if it's one click away, you're really misled. You know, we really have to sort of take a step back and say, you know what, that's not what they're saying to us anymore. What they're saying to us now is make them unavoidable, figure out how to make sure that no matter what you say to consumers, they're also going to see the
2: qualifying information. And one important thing for the FTC is that consumers must know when when they're viewing an advertisement. They must know when at you know, they're being advertised to. And on that point, we're going to take a break so you can be advertised to. We'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm.
1: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Hello, I'm Hector Elizondo, and I want to talk to you about getting older. My body
0: hurts, my joints ache, and sometimes I forget. I forget that doing all your own scenes for a movie isn't always the best decision, especially when you're galloping high speed on a horse named Archibello. So yes, my body hurts, but it's not because of my age. It's because I'm living my life. Don't let life pass you by. Take care of your brain health. It may just
2: help you stay on top of your game.
0: Oh, <laughs> Archie
2: Learn more at brainhealth.gov.
1: Catholic Charities is committed to providing life's basic needs. We thank you for bringing us all here today, letting these people understand how Catholic Charities runs and how important these people are. And we ask you to guide them, to protect them, and keep them here forever because this community needs them. Visit www.catholiccharitiesusa.org to learn. Webmasterradio.fm. Get addicted. Get ahead. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm.
2: And we're back, and we're talking with Jeff Greenbaum about the FTC and influencer marketing, and we were just doing an overview of how the FTC has transitioned from the Obama years to the the current administration, and we were talking about some of the efforts they made in the FTC endorsement guidelines and the dot-com disclosure guidelines. Another initiative they had, though, was trying to make sure consumers knew when they were being advertised to. And that we saw through the promulgation of native advertising guidelines, and then with the increased emphasis on addressing, I guess something that no one really could have foreseen in two thousand three when they did the initial dot com disclosures, the, the rise of influencer marketing. Is that a fair assessment, Jeff? You think?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I sort of, sort of, I sort of use the sort of the land shark analogy, right? I mean you know, the, the 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 idea of transparency and advertising is nothing new. You know, and Saturday Night Live when Landshark was trying to get in and they were claiming they were a flower delivery or whatever they were <laughs> delivering, right? You know, the FTC says, no, you know, if you're a Landshark, you got to tell people you're a Landshark. And I think that, you know, we've seen it for literally, I don't know, 30, 40 years, you know, FTC has given guidance that says if people are being advertised to, they have the right to know that they're being advertised to. And that misleading formats formats that confuse consumers about what they're seeing is they say it's a deceptive practice under section five. You know, they also say that when someone is speaking on behalf of a company, people have the right to know that that's happening and failing to disclose that is also deceptive practice. And again, this is not new guidance. I mean, the, the FTC's endorsement guides have been around for a long time and they've always said that, you know, if, if an endorser if there is a material connection that an endorser has, with an advertiser that that material connection needs to be disclosed. And the reason for that is, is that it's impossible to, um, or one that's not a a material connection. That's not reasonably expected by the audience needs to be disclosed. And the reason for that is is otherwise you really can't judge the weight with which to give the statements If you don't know the reason that they're giving them. And again, I I think the, the reason that it's important to think about, um, you know, is, is it a connection that they would have expected? Is it, you know, if you see a celebrity appearing in a TV commercial, right, you know that that celebrity has been paid and you don't need to disclose that they've been paid because everyone knows they have been paid. But the thing that we didn't really, the thing that I think took people by surprise a little bit was what if that same celebrity promotes the product in their Twitter feed and they tweet out, you know, love my new Cadillac. And, you know, the guidance that we've been living under for a long time was is you don't need to disclose that celebrities have been paid because everyone knows that they've been paid the problem is is that it was all filtered through paid media that required the intervention of an advertiser an advertising agency you know production so you would expect that those things only are appearing in the context of where someone was paying for it but you know in the sort of everyone's a publisher everyone's a speaker world that we live in today you know, celebrities are on Twitter for lots of different reasons. You know, some of it's you know, for their own branding. Some of it's because they like to talk about the products that they like. Some of it's because they're being paid to do it. And so, you know, some of this guidance was really about focusing on the revision of the endorsement guides, which also came sort of during the Obama years, was really to align the endorsement guides with the kinds of issues we were focusing uh, focusing on, particularly with respect to social media, and I think that the the guidance has really been that you know the rules are the same. That if consumers are not going to understand who or why someone's speaking to you, then they need to be transparent about that. But then we've had lots and lots of sort of you know uh, hand wringing about what's a sufficient disclosure. For example, um, you know when when when. When um, celebrities started posting on Twitter, including disclosures, they might put something like hashtag SP for, for sponsored or hashtag spawn right. to mean sponsored and or hashtag sweeps to mean that they're participating in a sweepstakes. And what the FTC has really come back and said is that they don't believe that these kinds of disclosures are ones that, that consumers are going to easily understand. Right. So a lot of the guidance that we've gotten from the FTC over the last several years has been that if you're going to disclose a material connection in social media, you really need to do it in a way that consumers are going to easily understand. Uh, the ambiguous disclosures don't really work. So for example, a celebrity might hashtag a brand or at mention a brand or even thank a brand. And the FTC has said that in all those situations that's not sufficient because you could do all of those things anyway. Um, Even if you're not being paid by the brand, you know, even, even, um, hashtag ambassador or, you know, hashtag partner, the FTC, you know, I think originally gave some ambiguous guidance on, but then sort of figured out, Hey, you know, we don't think people are going to understand that either. And that if you really want to communicate that you're a partner with general motors, you should say GM partner or GM Mm -hmm. ambassador or GM employee or something like that. Something that makes it really clear to
2: consumers what that relationship is. And one thing we've, one thing I've noticed in in my period of watching the FTC closely, is when they spot a problem, that they have, they generally tend to have like a, a conference, and try to address it. And they have their staff, you know, solicit comments from the conference and after the conference, and they put out a report. And then they monitor what's going on after the report is issued, and they send out. For about a year or two, they send out warning letters saying, "Hey, you know, we really think this is a problem, and you you should kind of align your conduct along that way. And um, we're not going to take any action now, but you know, we want you to take certain corrective action, and otherwise you'll you'll be fine." And then they they I call that the check swing approach. You know, they kind of they get your attention, but they don't really do anything. And and after a couple of years of check swings, they they then start launching enforcement actions. And I feel that in the last two years, we've moved from the check swing approach to enforcement when it comes to influencers. And I don't know if that's your perception or not.
0: Absolutely. I totally agree with you. I think that the FTC is not a gotcha agency. They don't typically come out of the blue and say to some advertiser, you know, what you're doing here is deceptive. We want to go after you for it. They tend to do a lot of very, very public things to sort of let people know what are the issues that they're going to be concerned about. And so I think you're right. I think that they typically, you know, hold a workshop, issue guidance, do warning letters, you know, speak at the big conferences where these issues are discussed and really let people know what's on their mind. And I think you're right. I think that we saw, you know, a bunch of warning letters, we saw the revision of the endorsement guides, we saw they issued FAQs, and they did a lot of things to try to get the business community up to speed with the kinds of issues that they were concerned about, and then, um, then they started to focus more on enforcement. I, mean, I think another thing is is that you know, the FTC is often really focused on trying to address issues in a strategic way, right? I mean, they are not saying, let's see if we can stop every possible. Influencer, every possible company. You know, they're right. looking for cases that cases that make a statement, right? So if they brought a case against a company that uh, held a blogging event and didn't tell the bloggers that they needed to. Disclose the fact that when they posted reviews that they were also compensated or incentivized to post those reviews, you know you know they're less likely to bring that case again instead they're going to bring a case against a company that ran a sweepstakes on Twitter, which is the case they brought against Kohan several years ago right. where you know Kohan incentivized people by saying we'll enter you into a contest if you Post a photo of our shoe on Twitter with a particular hashtag, and so you know, the FTC sort of goes step by step and says, well, what can we cover? What's another issue that we can take on to sort of sort of give this sort of give this guidance? I mean, you know, another complicated thing here is that you know, unlike other areas of administrative law, the FTC isn't an efficient rulemaking agency because of the sort of the restrictions on the way that an F- the FTC would have to go through a rulemaking process, they don't tend to issue rules. And as right. a result, a lot of the guidance, a lot of the guidance we get from the FTC is through advisory, non-binding, non-independently enforceable guides, like the endorsement guides or the green guides, you know, or through settlement agreements. So as a result of that, and this, this is maybe a, 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 a topic for another day, but you know, as a result, what happens is, is that we end up complying with laws that aren't laws, that haven't really been subject to maybe sufficient public comment that aren't necessarily that isn't necessarily guidance that is required by section five. And it's sort of a it makes it, it's sort of the it's sort of the FTCing of advertising law, which is that, you know, we're not really complying with advertising law. We're complying with what the staff believes, thinks, wants to be, should, wants that it wants to be, wants for it to be, you know, deceptive under Section 5. And so as a result, I think that one of the things we've seen now is, yes, we're seeing a lot of enforcement, but we're also seeing, you know, the FTC taking a very, very aggressive position about what is uh, potentially deceptive under Section 5, and you know, the reality is, is the cost and the exposure of battling the FTC and the adverse publicity. You know, leads companies to err on the side of settling these cases. Right. And then we see, well, they did this; they settled the FTC. So it seems like you shouldn't really be able to do that either. And so you, know, you get, you sort of the ability, you have the ability to do less and less and less. I'll give you an example. You know, the FTC uh, over the last several years said to consumers, said to the businesses. You know, we believe that if you've got a sponsored post, like an influencer speaking on your behalf on Twitter, we believe that the most effective way to communicate that is to put hashtag ad at the beginning of the tweet. Mm-hmm. Right. So before you before you and then before you then write out your 140 or now 136 or seven characters. Right. You have to write hashtag ad. Now, what's the rationale behind the FTC advising you to put hashtag ad at the beginning of the tweet? It's that they believed that consumers were not going to be able to read a whole 140 characters without being misled, right? right. Now, that kind of guidance where the FTC says, you know, they're, they're, at such a micro level, not only do you have to disclose to consumers that, that, that there's a material connection, but we're going to tell you or strongly advise you that we believe these are the words that are the best ones to, you should use and we are these are the words and we're telling you that this is where they should be. And so the FTC has gotten very very prescriptive about that. In fact, you know the FTC came out with a report uh, pretty recently, I think it was in the was in the was it in the fall, this sort of the report on they did a study on disclosures and search engines and on native advertising and the study was essentially a research study looking at consumer perception of different disclosures. So, you know, they would take a, a, an ad that might appear in sort of in Google search, and they would put a disclosure on the upper right-hand corner and the upper left-hand corner, and right. they'd see which was more effective. And they'd put a disclosure in gray versus in black, or black with orange highlights, or put the ad with a dark border. And so, you know, what the FTC was doing there was basically – you know, giving themselves really concrete evidence that supports that the kinds of advice that they've been giving in the guidance is really supported by actual consumer perception data. Now, that report itself is a little misleading in that, you know, much of the report doesn't really have statistical significance. Much of the report is much more just about directional information in terms of the kinds of things that people should think about. But, one of the big conclusions of the report was yes if you do the things we say your ads will be less deceptive but they said they also said that the disclosures didn't really solve all the problems and this gets back to the basic notion the ftc has that disclosures just aren't that effective and that even a really effective even a really strong disclosure that's placed well and that's prominent and that's easy to read and easy to understand um you know, it's not that likely to really, you know, really prevent all the per- potential deception that's out there. So, what it well, all this really means is that the FTC is trying to is looking for advertisers to hear this guidance that they're giving us, which is very, very specific. Really pay attention to the specific creative choices that you're making about where those disclosures go and what they look what like, what they look like because they are very concerned that the kinds of disclosures that people are using, you know, really just aren't just aren't are not sufficiently noticeable and people really won't not understand them. And so I think as we see these enforcement, as we see these cases happening, what we're seeing is, is the FTC's given a tremendous amount of guidance at this point and taken lots of informal action. And now is really is really trying to focus on, well, who can they go after? What are the cases that they can bring that's going to address any, you know, that's going to address some of the the enforcement issues that they still see that are out there
2: and an influencer marketing you know obviously something that was not or maybe was but very in small um market a decade ago um i'm looking at something that in 2017 there was 570 million spent by marketers on influencer marketing on instagram alone so you know Twitter, Facebook, you know, those are, those are separate. And um, so it's become this booming industry. And uh, you have, you know, any number of celebrities or, you know, now you have these YouTube celebrities, as we saw, um, who got some attention this weekend trying to um, negotiate their way into free hotels because they're such an important YouTube influencer. Um, it's become this industry, and the FTC is taking notice,
0: Absolutely. And I, you know, I think that you know, there is a very strong correlation between what's going on in the marketplace, what are the big issues that consumers are faced with, and where the FTC focuses its enforcement efforts. You know, it is no coincidence that in the spring of last year, the FTC did an enforcement sweep just of Instagram, right? I mean, the idea that they're choosing a specific social media channel and saying, hey, we believe that this platform, that there are enough issues that this platform alone faces that you know, we're going to look at that and we're, you know, we're going to see what's going on there. So what they did last spring was the FTC basically looked at Instagram posts and identified Instagram posts where celebrities were potentially promoting products. And they didn't know whether they were promoting products because they just liked them or because whether they had some sort of relationship with the advertiser. And they sent out about 90 letters, uh, both to the brands and the influencers themselves. And they were basically warning letters. They basically said, look, we're warning you. We're concerned that there may be a relationship that relationship here that has not been disclosed. And if, if, if it hasn't, uh, you know, please fix it and please, you know, fix your conduct going forward accordingly. And so they did this, and it was interesting both because of uh, – it was a focus on a specific social media platform. So the FTC is really – is focused on what is the most current and where they need to be focused on. That's number one. Um, the second is, is this was now during the Trump administration. right? So if you were a crystal ball reader in, two, in December of 2016, you would have said, we're not going to be hearing anything more about influencers. Right. We're not going to be seeing – big kinds of policy driven sweeps going after national advertisers for this kind of stuff. Instead, we're going to see more of a focus on fraud and things like that. And so I think it took a lot of people by surprise. The other thing that it did was that it was directed at the influencers themselves. And, you know, the FTC has, you know, the FTC as it has focused on these transparency issues has been concerned about not appearing to do two things. One is, you know, you know, impinge on someone's First Amendment rights, right? There's been a concern that some of this could be considered content, particularly when we talk about native advertising. So the FTC has been very, very careful to say, look, we only regulate commercial speech. We have nothing to say about speech that is non-commercial. None of this guidance applies here. And they've been very careful about trying not to cross that line. The the second is uh, they've been very concerned about not appearing to go after the little guy, they said when they first started all of this influencer enforcement and attention, they said, "Look, we are not going after individual influencers. That's not what this is about. This is about big companies, you know, advertising and advertising properly." And so this sweep in April 2017 took people by surprise because they actually contacted influencers directly um, and said to them, "Look, you have to make sure that your conduct uh, complies with the law." Um, and then. If that wasn't enough – oh, sorry. Go
2: ahead, Ben. No, no. Go ahead. Just, just finish that point, and then we're going to take a break.
0: Sure. So what I was going say is – and then what I think what took everybody really by surprise was that they actually followed up, right? So then a few months later, at the end of 2017, they actually did follow-up letters uh, to something like 20 influencers and actually asked them to provide information to the FTC about, you know, about their compliance.
2: And so we're going to take a short break just for full disclosure. I am drinking this coffee from Unurban Coffee House, not because I was paid to, but because they gave my dog treats when I brought him with me. So, and <laughs> we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm.
1: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Do you look at the task of ranking your site to top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let TopSEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Not on my watch, our military service members say, as they volunteer to serve, as they move out,
0: stand firm, and take fire. So not on our watch, we say, to the severely ill or injured veterans who can't get the care they deserve to live full and independent lives. Even when there's no government funding or a nursing home seems like the only option, we won't leave one warrior behind. Not on our watch.
1: Join us at findwwp.org. There are those who dedicate themselves to a sense of honor, to a life of courage and a commitment to something greater than themselves. They have always defended this nation and each other. They still do. The few. The proud. The Marines. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm.
2: About the sweep of letters that went out from the FTC to influencers, and to give you a sense of who they were sent to. And also, I can imagine you know, lawyers like Jeffrey and others um, must have had quite a time fielding calls from the like of Kim Kardashian, Kylie and Kris Jenner, David and Victoria Beckham, Anne Hathaway, Blake Lively, um, who else we have here? <laughs> Naomi Campbell, Chrissy Teigen, Heidi Klum, Farrell, Steph Curry, Drake, and, uh, and J-Lo. And so, uh, <laughs> so Jeffrey, did you have to put J-Lo on hold to talk to Farrell or were you talking to Beckham?
0: <laughs> well, w- what I would say is, is that it de- the letters def- definitely created... Uh, quite a stir they definitely raised a lot of concern for both brand and celebrities and you know it required you know look there is no question that there were there are issues out there that required people to address and i I think that i think that the instagram sweep was very effective in raising this level raising the level raising the concern to another level both among brands that maybe hadn't been focused on it in the way they should, as well as to sort of celebrities and their representatives. So I think it, I think it was, it certainly was very effect, a very effective way of getting people's attention. I mean, that being said, you know, look, I, to say something totally obvious, that the, so, the sort of the social media ecosystem is so big, And there are so many people posting and there's so much sponsored content and there's so many people working on this stuff that it is not a, it is not an easy fix. And you know, we're not going to see, we're not going to see these problems going away anytime soon. And so I think as a result of that, you know, we're still seeing the FTC focused on this issue and we're still seeing the FTC bring enforcement action. I mean one of the things that happened in the fall was the FTC actually brought its first enforcement action against the influencers themselves. And again, remember, thinking back to a few years ago, the FTC said they were not going to sue in- influencers themselves, and this was really the first case where they did it. Uh, and again, I, I would say, you know, is that an indication that celebrities may be a target in the future? Yes, I think it is yes. an indication that celebrities will be a target in the future. But I also think this case was sort of a baby step. This case was about uh, two guys that owned a company and they were promoting their company without disclosing their connection to the company. So right. yeah, you were going after the individuals, but there was a very close connection to the brand behind it. Uh, you know, we haven't yet seen a case like that where you know they pick a supermodel and sue her for failing to include the proper disclosure on Twitter. You know, but is that case coming? Yeah, it's absolutely coming.
2: And 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 consistent with their practice, when the FTC announced this action. And which was um, the CSGO Lotto case. And they did it by making another educational release ex- and explaining, um, one, having a, an infographic do's and don'ts for social media influencers, which are on our show notes, and with the acting chair, chairwoman Olhausen actually having a video message that went out on Twitter. And so, once again, you know, we're taking action, but you know, we're basically saying, please, please, please. Yeah, you know, we really mean it. And uh, but I, I do think you're right. I think that they are going to be going after um, influencers. And just for reference, and for on our for our show notes, we actually have the the letter from Public Citizen that listed and provided examples of all these celebrities that were engaging in influencer marketing without disclosing that they were paid endorsers. And so I think those days are, if you're acting without doing that, you're doing it at your peril.
0: Yeah, No, I think that the FTC has been trying very, very hard over the last decade to be technologically savvy and really understand the ways in which they can effectively communicate with both, with businesses and with others. And I think they've been trying to do that, but at the same time, there's still this real resistance to treating consumers like they are as technologically savvy as they should be one example you know oh, many of the social media platforms have tried to create disclosure tools to make it easier for brands and celebrities to disclose their connections and you know the hope was is that you know you didn't have to worry about the supermodel adding the hashtag ad to the to the tweet because in order to post the tweet, you could actually have an automatic handshake, which sort of makes it clear up top that this is something that's being done in in partnership with the brand. But in the most recent guidance the FTC issued, they basically said, don't rely on those social media tools. You know, we are not convinced that consumers are really going to process those and understand them, as well as they will a prominent disclosure in in the body of the tweet. So I think that, um, I think we need some more, public-private partnership here. I think that it was surprising to me that some of these tools got released without having vetted them ahead of time by the FTC. And there are good, strong reasons why you might not have done that. But you know, those tools are only going to be successful if advertisers use them, and advertisers are only going to use them if the FTC says it's going to solve the problem. So I think, that, I think part of this is trying to come up with some tools that help people on the compliance side, but where the FTC is also... You know, encouraging people to do it. You know, and again, I I think this relates a little bit to, you know, the FTC's, you know, resistance to adopting a standard that becomes the de facto standard. You know, it's the sort of the sort of COPPA approach to enforcement. Sure. You made a judgment. There's a certain age of kids, there's a certain age of kids where it's not okay, and there's a certain age of kids where it is. You know, sure, you can come up with your rationales, but at the end of the day, you know, if you're 15 years old, it's perfectly okay to give away your information. If you're five, it's not. Um, you know, I think on the disclosure front, the FCC has been very, very hesitant to provide safe harbors and say, if you do this, you're okay. Right. And until they're going to do that, it's going to be hard to have a standard that is sort of widely and consistently applied.
2: So very briefly, if you're you're Chrissy Teigen or Blake Lively and you're listening to the show, as you usually do, um, the FTC says, clearly disclose when you have a financial or family relationship with a brand. Ensure sponsorship disclosures are hard to miss. Treat sponsor tags, including tags and pictures, like any other endorsement. And on image-only platforms like Snapchat, superimpose disclosures over the images. So we're running out of time, Jeffrey. If people want to find out more about you, where should they go?
0: Uh, then come to the website, which is uh, fkks.com. Uh, we also just launched uh, a new advertising law blog, which is <laughs> which is available at some URL that's very long that I can't figure it out. But probably you could find it online. But we are we're, we're trying to. There is so much going on the social media front that.
2: Uh, uh, and you have a Twitter for social it. media too, don't you? A, a Frank, your firm has a yeah, social that's media. that's
0: true. T- That's true. That's right. I'm I'm, I'm so bad about talking about my social media in non-social media context, but you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Greenbaum. And uh, you can follow me at at Jeff Greenbaum And that also will take you to our advertising law blog as
2: well My new job, marketing director for Frankfurt Kernet. But um, Jeffrey, thank you very much It's always been a pleasure to work with you And I'm glad we could have you back And definitely follow him He's one of the leading authorities in this space And uh, it's going to be interesting to see Where this continues Once the new FTC um, gets on board So I want to thank you for joining us Check us out at Cyber Law Radio on Twitter. Again, this is Bennett Kelly, Internet Law Center. Check us out at InternetLawCenter.net. I want to thank our producer, Brasco, for all his help. And we'll be back next week for another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. Have a great day.